you're listening to Thought Starters, a podcast on the business of creativity. I'm Ellie Stuhler. Joining us in conversation today from the pod at White City Place, Tom Dykoff and John Grindrod. You may recognize Tom from The Secret Life of Buildings, the primetime documentary TV series that aired on Channel 4 in the UK. He's a historian, journalist, and broadcaster across the fields of architecture, design, and urbanism. He's recently published The Age of Spectacle, Adventures in Architecture and the 21st Century City, the story how architecture became obsessed with the flashy, the monumental, and the ostentatious. John Grindrod has also just published a book, in many ways a compliment to Tom's, called Outskirts, Living Life on the Edge of the Greenbelt. It explores the tensions between conservationists and developers, town and country, politicians and people, NIMBYs and the forces of progress. His previous book, Concretopia, is on the architecture of post-war British reconstruction. On the agenda, you guessed it, the ever-changing and seemingly cyclical life of city centers and suburbs. Why we're equally obsessed with ego-driven, glitzy towers and getting as far away from them as possible. But before we get started, just a note to listeners. This episode was recorded on one of the hottest days of the year so far. So we took the liberty of keeping the pod door wide open onto the park. So the background noise you'll hear is that of White City Place on a warm spring day. So John, we have one thing in common. We have many things in common. I've got a book out, you've got a book out. It's true. Mine's The Age of Spectacle, which is all about um, the history of architecture and cities since the 70s, but mine's got a particular focus really on the centre of the city, mm. or the inner city, and, and its so-called you know, renaissance or rejuvenation since the 70s. Whereas you are doing the opposite, you're looking at the edge of the city. Yeah, that's right. It's sort of odd, isn't it, that we've sort of, we've got a boundary line between our <laughs> yeah, two books. Yeah, where is Kind of where I lived, actually, yeah. I think, where I, where I grew up. It, probably, it sounds like where you grew up as well, actually. It's probably like the other side of London yeah, yeah, on yeah, that boundary. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And they're both very different, well, they're both very different conditions, really. And we both write about them in sort of different ways. I mean, yours is very... I guess very. It's got a large degree of, of memoir in it. I mean, mine's got a little bit in it, but not yeah. not, not so much. So why yeah. is that? Why is that just because it's a, a, the best place for you to? Well, it, it? it was weird. Really, I sort of knew that I wanted to write about the Green Belt, and I knew that it was a really really interesting subject. But it was very difficult to sort of find a way into it without it becoming polemical. And I'm not. I didn't want to write a polemical book because that's. The only way people ever talk about the Green Belt is... is for or against Exactly. And it's just so tedious. And I didn't want... So I didn't really want to write like an extended newspaper article kind of argument Mm. about the Green Belt. And then I guess in the research for for Concretopia, my last book, I I realised that I'd actually lived on the edge of the Green Belt, which I'd never realised before. I mean, it was just countryside. And then when I realised that was an actual thing, I thought, actually, it is interesting that my parents moved away from the centre of London out Mm. to the edge they experienced that big journey I sort of grew up just on the edge of London and um, I thought their story was so interesting it it actually did a lot of the work of the narrative that I wanted to tell Mm. without me having to kind of like then go I mean with the last book I went out and interviewed a load of different people Mm. to sort of get their stories but actually my parents story sort of did a lot of that work already yeah Yeah. I came about mine I suppose from the other way round I'd done I did a lot of interviewing I mean over the over the years and a lot of um, traveling and 
reporting on you know buildings and and cities and so on but then when I was sort of beginning to write the book I kind of thought well hold on I, actually my my family's own story is actually very pertinent to this you know in the sense that my family left the city you know the, the kind of the dense inner city in the 1960s when millions of people were doing so you know right across the west but you know particularly in in Britain and they moved to the edge of the city. In fact, they moved to the edge of the edge of the edge in many ways. They moved to the, within the, the, the green belt to the edge of uh, a city called St. Albans. And, you know, I grew up in a, uh, for the first, you know, few years in a starter home on the edge of St. Albans, you know, brand new in the, um, in the 1970s. And I, you know, like you, I remember very dimly in the back recesses of my memory. I, I remember, you know, the green fields and that feeling of being well, at the edge of something. I mean, literally at the edge of something. And it was sort of peculiar for me because soon afterwards, my parents then decided to move back to the city. I mean, I'm not talking about, you know, inner city London or Birmingham. I'm talking about, you know, the, they moved to the centre of St Albans and then from then on to various sort of centre of cities all over, the, all over the country. We moved out about quite a lot. And I was quite fascinated about their journey, about why my dad had left the city with millions of other people in the 1960s and 1970s and why what attracted them back to the city as well as a way of kind of understanding this kind of great kind of surge of well, what we now call gentrification in the city that way that the city has become attractive again at a time when you know after a, a long period when it wasn't you know 100 years almost you know because actually you know the, the the kind of condition that your book explores is has been the kind of condition over the last sort of 150 years kind of ex- leaving the city Moving to the edge of the city, moving to the suburbs, moving to the new town. Yeah, and that kind of idea, that sort of starts with that sort of Victorian idea of the city as a kind of sort of evil kind of place. Yeah. Full of diseases and, you know, miasmas that yeah, you have to kind of try the and The London escape. fog. Exactly. <laughs> well, and then, um, you know, and I guess the conditions that my parents grew up in weren't very different from a kind of Dickensian version of London. And poor old Rupel Street around the back of Waterloo uh, yeah. appears in like every period drama because it's like the only one nobody scrubbed to death. <laughs> yeah, it's true. You know, so, um, and it's so, and I guess a lot of the stuff that you're writing about is that kind of that weird transformation of of these places that that has, I don't know, it, it has happened in our lifetimes, and it has changed so dramatically some areas mm. of London. I mean, Hoxton and that whole area, sort of in the last sort of like 20 years, has sort yeah, of yeah. feels like kind of one of the most emblematic yeah. doctrines before that. And I think it's changed particularly actually since the economic downturn you know in 2008 mm. I think that I mean actually when that happened that was when I thought okay I'd actually quite like to write a book about what's happened in the last sort of 15 years um, you know particularly under you know new labor and, and so on and it seemed like the right moment that's when I sort of had the uh, had the idea and it's taken rather, rather a long time to actually get it written <laughs> and published but actually in the, in the intervening period that's when I've noticed the biggest change to you know the city that we live in now which is London you and I you know where it has become you know you think it's become gentrified and then it steps up another gear yeah. you know it becomes yeah. it becomes even more gentrified everything becomes even more you know places become more expensive to live in it's like the coffee bars get even more smart I mean, it's quite a mm. you know revelation to me in the 90s that London got decent coffee and now we have we have <laughs> so much decent coffee and so many fancy variants on coffee that it's yeah. all it's it's almost gone to a kind of you know well they call it super gentrification you know, it's become yeah. it's become one step further and now of course we've got the whole issue of you know, people investing in the city from from foreign countries and not living in in yeah. their places, and um, and that that swirl of money 
around the world. You know, what I guess what I'm talking about principally in the book is globalization and you know global yeah. flows of, of capital that have obviously stepped up and up and up and up since the 1970s to reach the kind of fever pitch that we, we see today. Yeah, and those architects that are sort of really, really associated with that. It's very interesting. I thought your portraits of the different architects that you talk about in the book are so interesting, particularly Frank Geary, who sort of comes out of it in a way that I sort of wasn't really expecting. It's weird. He's kind of complicit in the world that he's has grown up around him as yeah. in you know he hasn't said no to projects you know yeah, and he hasn't right. and he's gone along with creating a certain image about himself um but equally i just got the sense that whenever i've met him that he's there's some anguish in there somewhere yeah. that he's not quite comfortable with what and he always feels like he's been misunderstood what i wanted to get across in a book is that actually what's happened since the 70s has been a fundamental shift in global political economies you know mm, and gentrification mm, mm. is part of that we're all part of that we're all in many ways complicit in it as yeah. well as the architects the architects perhaps one could blame blame them for not taking you know there was a, a definite shift in them shuffling off you know any kind of political or ethical commitment i think to their work in the 70s and 80s and i think they could be they could be blamed for you know getting rid of that ethical moral basis which is behind so much modernism you yeah. know as, yeah, yeah. as you'll know from concretopia um that's kind of disappeared and they you know that kind of shift towards working we're all brands now and you know that an yeah. architect is no is no different so they're complicit in it but i also think they've been a little bit you know they could have done more i think to yeah. to make you know a stance particularly on you know politics and the ethics of what they're taking part yeah, in yeah absolutely and also actually reading about all the kind of you know those kind of big architects and their gentrification made me sort of think back about the green belt stuff that i've been writing about and there is there's so much similarity but because of the green belt controls it appears in a different way so mm. in the green belt the kind of the change instead of these sort of great kind of star architect schemes, you get golf courses and, mm. you know, you get the actual change of use and a kind of like environmental catastrophe, really, that happens when you turn an ancient landscape into a golf course. Mm. And it's, you know, that kind of change of ownership and the, the, the way that that affects a whole area can be, can be absolutely massive and it can be as equally kind of big as those kind of fundamental shifts in districts in cities. Mm. And in a way, because there's a lot fewer people living in those areas, we don't, we don't notice it as a sort of society, as much those big mm. changes and I found that really fascinating and also that kind of weird kind of because of the because of the green belt and the sort of the controls on it that kind of absurd sort of densification of villages and the towns within it where you are allowed to build mm. you know to a certain extent it's sort of within the boundaries and you end up with these kind of crazy little islands of development where there's sort of like zero space and then suddenly you're mm. sort of you have these kind of fields and golf courses and stuff that are all sort of privately owned so you can't really go on them and that just strikes me that there's a lot of overlap between those those kind of you know landscapes in cities that we have those sort of private privatized landscapes in yeah, cities recreation of, of a form of recreation yeah, yeah and places that you know actually you're not allowed to go in after you know in you, you're allowed to go in sort of in permitted hours mm. and that's it really that sort of struck me as one of the issues with the garden bridge was mm. that you know that that idea that it was kind of ultimately just going to be kind of accessible for a certain mm amount of time for you know and it was going to be controlled you yeah. know suddenly that very uh, that idea of controlled public space feels like a, a big kind of cross 
over between the two things we've written about, yeah. I feel. No, exactly. I, I've, I always feel quite nostalgic because, you know, we've, we've probably both grown up in a, in a period where the, the state has been retreating, where, you know, mm. certainly the welfare state has been retreating. And yet we've probably also um, felt the benefit of that as well in terms of our, our schooling and, and upbringing and the health care that we've received and so on. But now, of course, we're living in a culture, I mean, perhaps it's changing now, you know, who knows? It's sort of politics kind of up for grabs at the moment, but been through a period where it's kind of disappearing and being replaced mm. by something else, which is, you know, about essentially privatisation, the, 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 you know, the, the rise of, of the corporation. And it's quite interesting that, you know, when you talk about, I mean, both in Concretopia, but also, you know, in outskirts, you're talking about the results of the opposite, of a period of heroic state, of heroic planning, of central... Yeah, planning. absolutely. And which, of course, had its own problems as well. Yeah. Looking back on it now, you know. Yeah. Well, no, you write a lot about Jane Jacobs, don't yeah. you, in your book, and she yeah. kind of keeps cropping up, you know. Yeah, and she she's, does have she's, a habit of that. <laughs> she is kind of such an odd figure, you yeah. know, because on the one hand, <laughs> you know, it's very easy to kind of get swept up in her kind of mm. mission and her her thing, but at the same time, a lot of what she says is sort of going against the sort of the stuff that I believe from being able to kind of make a change to somewhere, mm. a positive change, you know. And I feel like there's quite a lot of, ultimately a lot of what she's talking about results in stasis, which isn't necessarily always the right thing to do, you know. And I guess, you know, that ultimately it ends up with the things that she's talking about end up with gentrification of an area rather than a kind of... Yeah, well, consist- indeed. I mean, she was a gentrifier. Yeah. I, mean, I don't know she wouldn't have known, you know, she probably wouldn't have admitted it to herself, but, you know, she moved to Greenwich Village, you know, was of the middle class at that time mm. with an architect husband and did up her her townhouse. This was in the, I think, about in the early 1950s. So that yeah. was, uh, you know, before she wrote Death and Life um, of Great American Cities. So... You know, she was a gentrifier. And she, I think to me, what's fascinating about the book is that she was one of many people. I mean, I know she, she gets all the kind of plaudits now, but she was one of many people in the post-war period that was critiquing modernism. Oh, you know, absolutely. yeah, but yeah, the, yeah. You know, there were Team 10 and the Smithsons and, you know, in there, in there, and exactly. Yeah, yeah. There were lots of people that were critiquing uh, modernism and saying, OK, well, modernism was good in this respect, but it's not actually... Mm. Well, I think now we would we would probably say it's not really allowing the individual or individual ideas to flourish. So it's kind of you know it's very centralised and so mm. on. So you know generally people were were all coming at that from a similar kind of perspective, but in, in different kind of ways. And and also the, you know the rise of of heritage, you know people preserving heritage as well, which also you know started to emerge in the 1950s. And that kind of experience, I guess that kind of shared experience in the 50s of of the city beginning to be destroyed, either had been destroyed through the war, through bombs, was being destroyed through, you know, urban renewal or comprehensive redevelopment, or was, uh, you know, was about to be destroyed through through road building. So a lot of people were, were using that kind of moment of transformation to say, hold on a second, there were problems. It's not taking into account me. And of course, people from the left and the right as well were, yeah, yeah, political absolutely. left and right were, were thinking about and yeah. rethinking about what the city might be. But as you say, you know, Jane Jacobs becomes a kind of... Uh, the pivot, I mean, I guess because she was so influential, you know, in North America. And She's become like the enduring figure of that movement, hasn't she? In, yeah. Certainly in America, as you say, you know, in the way I guess that Nairn has here. Or has sort of become a resurgent yeah. figure. He sort of felt like his reputation sort of went away and came back, whereas I feel like her reputation has sort of been a bit more solid. 
You're listening to Thought Starters with architecture and urbanism authors Tom Dykoff and John Grandrod. What has obviously shifted enormously in the last 50 years is that, that idea of creativity in a city becoming an important thing, by which I mean an economically important thing, as cities have shifted their roles from you know, industrial manufacturing to service economies in the last 50 or 60 years, the creative sector has risen in importance as a thing. You know, 100 years ago, you know, if you thought about, kind of about a creative quarter, maybe you would have thought about Chelsea you know, being lived mm. in by Oscar Wilde and Whistler and, and so on, but they would never have thought of themselves as you know, being... <laughs> No, like a creative quarter, but uh, but also you know it wasn't a key part of the economy. Whereas mm. now it's it's a key part of the economy. So the resurgence of of cities in the last sort of fifty years has come about, I think, largely because of this this shift in the economy and this the rise in aspiration of of all of us to become sort of artists to live kind of creative yeah. lives, whatever you know, drinking coffee and living like bohemians in many ways. You know, but bohemians that are hopefully well paid as well which is kind of a hard <laughs> thing to square because actually yeah. you know the one thing about the one key thing about being an artist is that you have freedom and freedom comes about through i guess having time and space and you know the ability to be able to do what you want on your own terms now if you have a city that of course is extremely expensive to live in yeah, you know how can you live great. creatively or what freedom do you actually have yeah. and of course you know we're seeing you know the, the challenges faced by successful economically successful cities for you know, how, where can artists or indeed anyone even now in sort of the middle class even you know can they actually stay in a city or who knows what's going to happen we can't even predict what's going to happen at the end of the week at the moment no no i thought one of the things that was quite interesting reading your book is you start off you're so enthusiastic and excited at the beginning and then by the end of it oh i'm a bit i'm a bit depressed aren't i <laughs> you are <laughs> and I'm quite it's in- like you crush yourself during the process of writing the book is that what is that what sort of what happened in the process of doing it or is- i didn't really find many well well also i didn't really find many green shoots <laughs> of cheerfulness if you see what i mean i'm naturally a very optimistic person and an enthusiastic person um however i was taught by marxists which means <laughs> which means that I, I tend to look on the gloomy side i essentially my what underpins the book is the argument that I think within a lot of writing about the city and a lot of writing about particularly about architecture is that people don't tend to consider the economics and the political economy behind a building. You get a lot of people, I mean I was brought up on architecture in the 80s when everyone was talking about style and it was like mm. Prince Charles versus the modernist, traditionalism versus mm. modernism and that was of no interest to me whatsoever. What I was interested in is saying well I'm not actually interested so much even in what architects are doing. I want to know who's the person paying for that building and what does what do they want out of it? Why are they using that architect mm. r- rather than that architect? Mm. What are they and that idea of architecture being an expression of power, you know, economic and political power was what was much more interesting to me. So I guess, you know, yeah, I end I end up slightly depressed principally because I think that within architecture in particular there's this kind of or well, there has been until quite recently a debate about this style or that style being better in some ways and uh, personally I don't think one style is any better than the other it's, it's, it's largely a, subjective it's thing nowadays yeah redundant exactly. argument so you it? get all these kind of architects that emerge you know like Zaha Hadid and, and uh, Rem House and um, Daniel Lieberskind and, they, and they've become very successful now and you know, their, their buildings all over the world and then you get the kind of the reaction to that and that reaction until relatively recently has been largely about style you know, a whole group of architects will say, no, I actually want a certain type of traditionalism in my architecture. I yeah. want 
bricks. I want a certain proportion, a human scale, blah, 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 blah. What is emerging now slightly more is a, an interest in critiquing the ethics behind both approaches to, to architecture. And I think that's really important. The only point I really wanted to make about it, about that in the book, is that I think that the way that we consume architecture in cities has turned us into passive spectators of architecture now yeah. over the last 30 or 40 years rather than active participants and by us I mean you know ordinary people not mm. people that are not architects and and planners and so on but the, the, all of us that live in the city we're very distanced from it we are we we treat the city like a theme park for which we pay a, an entrance and we we go around and look at it like tourists but we don't actually we're not invited ever to yeah. be actively involved in in making cities and I suppose that's where I kind of end the book is with a plea for that. Um, and I guess I'm depressed because I don't see, I mean, there are one or two green shoots, you know, you see the work of someone like a, you know, a group like Assemble, group of kind of yeah. architects and artists who very actively involve the local community in, mm. in their schemes. Um, but fundamentally, fundamentally to do that, you need, a, a, to do that en masse, you know, across a culture, you need a massive change in politics and economics and I don't see that happening anywhere at the moment. No yeah. and it's one of those things isn't it it's it's the sort of target driven idea isn't it that you know we have these targets we've got to house these amount of people we've got to do these things you know we've decided these are our priorities and therefore those become the drivers behind commissioning work rather than a kind of what would you know what what would actually this area be like you know, what yeah. would we like it to be like? You know, yeah. that doesn't seem to be a kind of, you know, what would people actually want? You know, that that's never seems to be much of an issue. One of the things that also I thought was quite, um, was, was like a really big difference between the books that we've written is I think mine, whereas you're, you're talking about, you know, all of these kind of, you know, the icons and all that kind of, mm. you know, pizzazz and the thing that sort of slightly attracted me to the green belt is that it's quite boring you know that it ha it's got none of that kind of yeah. excitement you know as a thing partly you know not that the not that the actual areas themselves are boring mm. or that you know any of that but the actual green They're belt muted. you know as muted, isn't it? Yeah, yeah a sort of policy it's sort of abstract it doesn't really exist as a physical entity you can't point at it there are no signs you know unless you've like read some you know map mm. there's no evidence that something is green belt or not green belt um and it's and, and it's that word which has become very dismissive now yeah, suburban absolutely. so it's that kind of touched with suburbia yeah. and there's, there's there's you know suburbia is this word that can can excite a lot of passions in people yeah, you yeah. know about you know the, the, its qualities and whether it's a good thing or a, or a bad thing but you know very you know certainly in the last 20 or 30 years you know to be suburban brings with it a certain series of uh, qualities that are supposedly not meant to be positive and uh, you know yeah. that's we can argue about whether that's a, a good thing or not I mean I, you yeah. know, there are good suburbs and bad and bad well, suburbs absolutely I mean I'm very much a but there is of the suburbs so uh, I, and uh, exactly and what I think also permeates both of our books you know I'm looking I'm looking for commonalities here now is that uh, is that issue of class yeah. that comes through and actually what you know, I come from a background, you know, my dad was working class, you know, my grandmother lived in Dalston before it was, you know, very much, <laughs> when it was very much a slum. Um, and I guess, that, you know, my family, you know, moving out of the city, they were following a kind of path of aspiration, you know, mm. they're moving away. And what became fascinating to me was 
when you know moving back into the city how that became a for the mid for the middle classes it became an aspirational thing whereas you know traditionally you know the middle classes were hyacinth bouquet and they moved to the yeah. Margot and jerry and they moved to the suburbs whereas you know now they're not they moved you know if you're mm. aspirant and middle class you move to battersea yeah yeah <laughs> absolutely and i think my parents they're their journey just seemed to be completely accidental. You know, we there, there seemed to be at no point they did they seem to make a conscious decision. Events just kind of conspired to kind of push them in various directions. So they were living in the slums. The slums get demolished, so they moved to a flat. They, you know, have too many kids to live in that flat. They're mm. sort of shoved out by the council or sort of somewhere else, you know. So, and actually they're part of a system that is sort of humanely housing people in a sort of strategic way, you know, moving people slowly out of London, trying to kind of, you know, sort of release land within central London so that there's a bit more space for people and a bit more green space that can be brought in. And that is also kind of quite an interesting story, I think, you know, because it is an... It's almost the last remnant of that heroic period of planning well it is absolutely and i think actually most people that defend the green belt don't associate it with that era Mm. they see it as completely divorced like they see it as the savior from tower blocks whereas actually it's the same story as tower yeah exactly the, the same and yet actually i think quite often those two things are seen as opposites rather than the same story whereas i guess the things that we're writing about are opposites because you're writing about this sort of mm. post-heroic yeah. what happened next yeah, the dismantling of. of the state the dismantling yeah. of, of planning as a as a big thing that was historian journalist and broadcaster tom dykoff whose new book is the age of spectacle and john grandrod author of outskirts living life on the edge of the green belts This has been Thought Starters, recorded at the pod at White City Place. Thought Starters is a DNN co-project for White City Place, produced by David Michon, recorded by George McDonough, and edited by Claire Crofton. To find out how you can record your own podcast at White City Place, visit us at whitecityplace.com, on Twitter or Instagram at whitecityplace, or shoot us an email at podcast.whitecityplace.com. And subscribe to Thought Starters on iTunes, Acast, and Stitcher. Give us a rating and write us a comment. It really helps. We'll see you next time. Hold up. 